Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. From the outset, let me just say that my my voice is wavering, and so I will do my best uh, to speak in a way that you will be able to hear me, though I am from Texas, and I've been told that I am rather loud, so I don't know that you'll have much of a problem, but pray that my voice would, uh, would stay through the sermon. I bring you greetings from University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, where I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders of that church. Uh, We pray for you regularly in Houston. We pray that you would continue to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel and that you would be a continued faithful witness in Northern Virginia. We pray that you would continue to sing well and to love well and be a good example to those not just here but around the country and around the world. You know, I had the privilege of speaking uh, this Friday night and Saturday with the brothers at the men's retreat. So I want to thank you to the elders and to the church for the opportunity to spend time with so many men that I love and so many men that I got to know and surely will grow to love. We spent most of our time together this weekend in Ephesians chapter 5, considering how the, uh, the Apostle Paul calls men to walk in love and to walk in light and to walk in wisdom as we live our various vocations in the family and in the church and in the world. The Apostle Paul had spent years among the Ephesians proclaiming the kingdom of God, Acts 20, 25. And the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul facing Roman imprisonment and proclaiming even in Rome the kingdom of God. And it's in that Roman imprisonment at the end of Acts that the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesian church that he loved so much. You'll likely recall that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is six chapters long, and it breaks up perfectly with three chapters of indicatives. Or as Jed Campen remind us at the uh, men's retreat, three chapters of the way it simply is. Followed by three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, of imperatives. Or those chapters that tell us what we ought to do in light of the way it is. And so it's Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul makes his transition from the way it is to the way we ought to act. And that's where we're going to focus our time this morning together in this service. You know, if you've read through Ephesians recently, you know that Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 are filled with what one brother in our church called some really heady stuff. Things like predestination and adoption. Things like election and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And when we read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, I know in my own heart that I well with joy and excitement and am overcome with uh, the great uh, weight of glory that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And then I get to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and I I see a lot of do this, don't do that. And it starts to weigh me down a little bit. But I want to remind us this morning that every part of God's Word, whether it's the indicative or the imperative, is to be received, like Paul said in Romans 11.33, for us to declare to God, oh, the depth of the riches and the knowledge... And the wisdom of God. 
How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. And so whether we're deep diving in indicatives or riding the waves of imperatives, let us have a heart that sees the wisdom of God in His Word. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord and one faith. There is one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He had also descended into the regions, the earth. He who descended, the one who is also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, we're going to consider these 16 verses this morning in three sections. So if you're taking notes, here's the helpful outline for you. 16 verses, three sections. Verses 1 through 6, the unity of the Spirit. 1 through 6, the unity of the Spirit. Verses 7 through 13, diversity of gifts. Unity of the Spirit, diversity of gifts, verses 13 through 16, one common purpose. Unity of the Spirit, diversity of gifts, one common purpose. Let's pause now and let's pray and let's ask God to be with us as we consider His Word together. Let's pray. Father, what we know not Teach us from Your Word and by Your Spirit. Father, what we have not, give us by Your good pleasure and good grace. And Father, what we are not, make us, conform us to the image of Your beloved Son, that we would walk in a manner worthy of Him. And we pray all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, first, let's consider verses 1 through 6, the unity of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul has just finished praying for the church of Jesus Christ 
that we would be strengthened by the Father in the love of the Son and through the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 3, that we would in our inner being be filled with all the fullness of God. This grand and gracious prayer is punctuated with Paul's praise to God in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, where Paul writes, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This grand and gracious prayer that punctuates the end of the indicatives of chapter 1, 2, and 3. Paul praises God that He can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think. And after we give that hearty amen to Paul, it's as if he lifts up his head and he stares us in the eye and he says, therefore, because of all of these things that I've unpacked for you, because of the God who can do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all that we ask or think, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have in Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, do you feel the Christian yoke? Do you feel the Christian burden in Paul's words? The literal urgency of his voice. The Apostle Paul is saying to us this morning that we ought to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. And even more than that, Paul is saying to us that we can walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. We can do it. The opposite is true, of course, that we can walk in an unworthy manner. We can quench the Spirit of God. We can profane the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can cast doubt upon our election and calling as Christians, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Peter 1. But beloved, I fear, and maybe this is just in Houston, Texas, but I don't think it is. I fear that sometimes we hear calls for holiness. We hear calls for walking in a worthy manner and urging to be holy like God is holy and we receive it with apprehension. We receive it with anxiety. We're quick to qualify or to downplay the necessity of holiness in the Christian life. We fear greatly that red letter L that might be sewn upon our chest for legalists. But we should never, beloved, we should never receive the biblical commands given to us by God apart from the gracious God who gives them. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Think, think back to Adam and Eve, our first parents in Genesis 1 and 2. God made the world and everything in it. And He made Adam and He put Adam in the garden. All gracious acts of God. And then God commanded Adam. After God had been gracious to him, had supplied all of his needs, then God commanded him, we see this same relational pattern between God and His people with Noah and with Abraham. We see it in the giving of the law in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. A gracious act of God. 
A powerful, wonderful, gracious act of God. Bringing them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not make graven images. Therefore, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Grace, preceding, command. And this relational dynamic between God and His people works its way all throughout the Bible, even to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, perhaps my favorite ten verses in all of the Bible, if I can say that. The Apostle Paul tells us that we were dead in sin. Every one of us, dead in sin. That we were condemned in sin. That we were enslaved in sin. We followed after the prince of the power of the air, that wicked Pharaoh that is even now at work in the sons of disobedience. Chapter 2, verse 4, the two words that change everything. But God, dead in sin, condemned in sin, enslaved in sin, following after the wicked Pharaoh, son of disobedience, child of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive with Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved, beloved. By grace you have been saved. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of your good deeds. And it's at this point that every good Arlington Baptist church member, every good Christian, every good Reformed Baptist, or whatever you want to call yourself, every one of us should shout hallelujah. Not a single one of us can be justified by our obedience. We must all look to Jesus Christ who obeyed every one of God's commands, who sacrificed Himself on the cross for us, and who rose victorious from the dead for us. He is our justification. And yet, what does Paul tell us in Ephesians 2 verse 10? Ephesians 2 verse 10, speaking the Word of God to us, all of this wonderful justifying grace having come to us, the Apostle Paul says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, or you might say recreated even, in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For good works. And not just any good works, but the good works that God Himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace leads to work. Grace precedes command. Grace leads to a Christian walking a life that is worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so beloved, I want you to know this morning that if you are discouraged, if there are people in your life you're praying for who are discouraged, be encouraged that this gracious God who has taken you from the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light, this gracious God says to you, you can walk in a worthy manner of Jesus Christ. And not just because you can, it's not, just, it's not that you can, but it's that God Himself has prepared this for you beforehand. 
He has called you out of the land of Egypt, the kingdom of darkness, out of slavery to sin. And He has placed you in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And He has given you His Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, that will empower you to do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we can all say with the church father Augustine, Augustine, command what you will, O God, and then give us what you command. And God will answer that prayer. Command what you will and give us what you command. In Ephesians chapter 4, in Paul's letter here, the very first way that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling as Christians is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3. Recall that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is wrestling through the merger of Jew and Gentile. A church that is wrestling through all that that merger would entail for the Christian life. And even more than that, he's writing to this church, to Christians living in the midst of a wicked and dark world. And Ephesus, that was full of sexual immorality, full of sensuality. And Ephesus, that was full of idolatry and greed, of power and position. I wonder if you're familiar with these things in Northern Virginia. Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus. And in the midst of incredible differences and difficulties, Paul urges them, and he is urging us, beloved, to be eager to maintain or to manifest this unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. I wonder if you see Paul's logic. Look with me at Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Look at Paul's logic in these verses. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because, right, because, do you see it there? Because we have one God and Father. Because we are one body. Because we have one God and Father of our Lord, the one Lord, Jesus Christ, who lived for us and died for us, and the the Lord Jesus who lives again even now for us. And He lives by the power of the one Holy Spirit that's at work within us. We have one faith, that faith that was once for all delivered to the one body of saints who who entered the one body through the one baptism. And together we share in this one great and glorious hope. A hope that Paul says is Christ in us. The hope of glory. I wonder if you caught the sevenfold oneness that Paul highlights for us here. This picture of completion and fullness at work in the church of Christ. And this sevenfold oneness of one God and one Lord and one Spirit, one faith, one body, one hope, one baptism. This is the completion and fullness that is the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. And so Paul is urging us to maintain it, to keep it, to preserve it, to manifest it in flesh and blood in the church. Brothers and sisters, you must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace at Arlington Baptist Church. Not just any church, not just the church universal, but this particular church. And I would encourage you 
to go and read this afternoon Jesus' prayer for us that we may be one as He and the Father are one from John 17. And I would encourage you to pray. Pray from John 17. That very prayer for this church. Pray that prayer for University Park Baptist Church that is still working through two and a half years later a merger of two very different churches. Pray for every faithful church of Christ that we would all be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And beloved, beloved, we do that. We do that by showing forth our humility. We do that by being gentle with one another. By being patient with one another. And above all things, by loving one another. And so now, beloved, we will, we, we, I encourage you, I urge you to walk by the Spirit in a manner worthy of your calling by turning away from your pride and walking in humility. When Augustine, when Augustine was asked, what is the chief Christian grace? He replied, humilitas, humilitas, humilitas. Now, my kids are in a classical school and they're learning Latin. I had to look that up. I didn't know what humilitas meant because I'm just a dumb Texan. But it apparently means humility. I'm sure all of you already knew that because you're very educated Northern Virginians. Chief Christian grace, humility, humility, humility. One author defined humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so turn from your pride and walk the path of humility. We also ought to turn away from our wrath and anger and walk the path of gentleness. Now listen, gentleness is not winsomeness. Gentleness is not weakness. But gentleness is strength under control. That godly Presbyterian Ian Hamilton says that the gentle are strong in their convictions concerning the truths of the gospel. But they hold those convictions with a heart that loves the saints. And so beloved, as you contend for the faith, are you doing it with a heart that loves the saints? We ought to also turn from our impatience and walk the path of patience. The path of long-suffering, which also includes turning from our hatred and our anger, letting go of our bitterness, and walking the path of love. Because Paul tells us that love is patient and love is kind. That love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And we're not talking about marriage here. We're talking about the church of Christ. That you would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit by loving one another. Because love never ends. And why does love never end? It's because our God is love. And that God, that eternal God, will forever sustain His church until we are with Him in glory. Which Jonathan Edwards said was a world of love. 
All of these things, all of these things accomplished by a continual turning from our sin and keeping in step with the Spirit of God as we walk the path of life by faith together as a church. God has made known to us, beloved, the path of life. Psalm 16, we talked about it at the men's retreat in passing. Psalm 16, God has made known to us the path of life. In His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our great pleasure forevermore. And so loved ones, walk in a manner worthy of your calling by eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, bond of peace in this church. And as you live in such a way in the church, the Apostle Paul tells us that this unity of Spirit comes with a diversity of gifts. A diversity of gifts. Look with me at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. We'll just stop there for now. Paul says in these verses that while we, are un- while we are united in the Spirit, we are of one faith, one body, that we are all of differing measures of grace, differing levels of maturity, particularly differing measures of gifts. Paul is not speaking here of differing levels of salvation. One is further along the path of salvation or has has more righteousness than another. We are not Roman Catholic. No, we are Christians. And so we know that every true Christian stands before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But here, the Apostle Paul is speaking to something else. Something that James Hodges was, clear to make, was, was good to make clear to us at our men's retreat, and that of sanctification. We all intuitively and experientially understand, and I'm confident that each Christian here can think of, that there is a brother or a sister who you look at and you think to yourself, that brother or sister is further along the path of faith than I am. We all start the Christian life by God's grace as infants. And we need spiritually mature and gifted brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, to help us grow in maturity and godliness. And let me, let me publicly say this. I want to thank the ministry of this church. The ministry of Arlington Baptist Church and the life of my family. In my own life, the life of my wife, and the residual effects of the life of our children, I want to thank you for the ways that you have helped us grow in godliness over the years. We've been gone for seven years now, but we regularly thank God for our time in this congregation. We thank God that this congregation was used to grow us, even so little or so much, depending on your perspective, in godliness. Paul's point in verses 7 through 13 is simply to say that there is a diversity of grace and gifts within the church of Christ. Note with me for a moment that these spiritual gifts, 
These gifts are sovereignly given to every Christian. So if you're a Christian here, you need to think to yourself, what gift has God given me? Did you see that in verse 7? Verse 7, it says, grace was given to each one of us. Grace was given to each one of us. Whatever spiritual gift that we possess, we have because of the good pleasure and kindness, the grace of God. And so, beloved, to envy or to grumble against another Christian's giftedness is to question the wisdom of God. And so it isn't any wonder that Paul tells Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. The spiritual giftedness of others is an opportunity to thank God for the gifts He gives to His church. Paul then turns to a peculiar way here in verses 8 and 10. In verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68 verse 18, which is this triumph psalm. Psalm, a psalm that is about a conquering king, about the Lord who ascends on high, leading a host of captives free. And I wonder if you hear in this psalm the, the, the words and the triumph of the Exodus and the, and the triumph of the, of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, leading you free, you captive free. Do you see that Paul is seeing here? Do you see what Paul is seeing here? Do you see that Paul is seeing in Psalm 68 verse 18 the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That by His resurrection and His ascension, He has led us, former captives, free from the bondage to sin and death and hell. And then Paul does this this odd thing in verses 9 and 10. He gives us this parenthetical in most of your Bibles where he says, hey guys, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. If any of you didn't catch it, I am talking about Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're here this morning and maybe you have lots of questions about Christianity. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you've wandered in because of the invitation of a friend. I am so glad that you're here with us today. So glad that you're here with us. I wonder what you think about all that I've said so far. I am glad that you are here to consider with us what it means to be called out of darkness into the kingdom of God the kingdom of light. I also want you to know that you too can be called out of the darkness of sin and death and hell into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That you too can be set free from captivity to sin and death and hell. Friends, you need to know that this is God's world and that you are living in it. That you are in rebellion against God. You need to know that God is the author of your life and so has authority over your life. Friend, you need to know that you do not live the way God requires of you. And that's what we call sin. But these strange verses, if you have a Bible open, friend, look at Ephesians 4 verses 9 and 10. These strange verses 
The Apostle Paul here wants you to know that God became a man in Jesus Christ. You see in these verses that Paul says that the one who ascended, that is Jesus, also descended to the earth. That's him wanting you to know that Jesus became a man. He lived a life that you can never live. He died a death that you deserve. He took the punishment for your rebellion on Himself. And even more than that, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And in His resurrection, He is publicly proving to every one of us today that His life and that His death are acceptable payments for our sins. And then, as if that were not enough, the Apostle Paul is reminding all of us, and especially you, my unbelieving friend, he is reminding us in these verses that Jesus Christ, the one who descended, Jesus Christ is the one who ascended, returning to His place of majesty in heaven. And friend, right now, in the preaching of God's Word, in the proclamation of this Gospel, Jesus Christ Himself is calling you to turn from your rebellion and to trust your, your faith, your whole life to Him. To give yourself by faith to Him. And so friend, I urge you, as a minister of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to give yourself to Him to turn away from the path of death and to walk the path of life. And friend, if you do that today, the angels in heaven will rejoice. But even more than that, the brothers and sisters in this room will rejoice with you. And so tell one of us, tell me after the service, tell your mom or dad, tell your friend who brought you here today that you have turned from your sins and walked the path of righteousness in Jesus Christ by faith. Now, look with me again at verse 8. Look again at verse 8. If you read Psalm 68, 18, most, if not all, of your Bibles will say that He received gifts from men. From men that He received gifts from men. But Paul says here that He gave gifts to men. So what's going on? Well, uh, one explanation is simply to say that some ancient manuscripts actually read like Paul's quotation. And so, so it could be that Psalm 68, 18 ought to say he gave gifts to men. That's the easiest explanation, but those manuscripts are, are a minority report. And so likely what's happening here is that Paul is emphasizing the triumph of Jesus Christ in his resurrection and ascension that it is so incredible that a dead man walked out of the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God on high. He is emphasizing this reality because it is such a victorious reality. That it is so incredible that what Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners like you and me, that the plunders of His victory means He has enough to give gifts to men. 
It is not that Paul is misquoting Psalm 68, but that Paul is simply applying apostolic reason to emphasize the incredible grace of God in Jesus Christ, available for anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Him, that not only is He due all honor and all glory and all blessing, not only should He be receiving these gifts from men, but that in His victory, Jesus Christ graciously gives gifts to men. That is the Jesus we serve. He did not come to be served, to receive, but He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for us all and then to give us the gifts of His Spirit. This is what the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ poured out His uh, on us that which you have received. In other words, when Jesus Christ ascended, the Spirit of Christ descended and He gave gifts to men. So you may be thinking to yourself, what are these gifts? Well, now that's a good question, but that's a completely different sermon, and I'll let you ask your elders about that, because I'm not going to get into it. But the New Testament, I'll say this, does give us four passages that list at least 20 different gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, 1 Peter 4, and our passage today. In our text here, Ephesians 4, Paul mentions four particular gifts that God gave to His church. The Apostles the prophets, the evangelists, and for some of those of you who think that I can't count because I'm from Texas, you may be right, but I have a reason. He gave shepherd teachers, not just shepherds and teachers. So I put shepherds and teachers together. Four gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. I think it's instructive that each one of these gifts is what's called a word gift. So in the, in the Bible, you'll see uh, gifts of speech and gifts of service. And these particular gifts are gifts of speech. They are identified with the gift of speaking and teaching God's Word to God's church. The apostles and prophets were foundational to the church of Christ, Ephesians 2.20. The apostles were men, including the Apostle Paul, uniquely commissioned by the Lord Jesus Himself to speak and teach God's Word to God's church. And so the entire New Testament is apostolic teaching. It carries the weight and the authority of the Lord Jesus Himself because it was given to us by His apostles. And the prophets referred to here in Ephesians 4, I believe, were also foundational to the church of Christ. That is, they are prophets that were, that were contemporaries of the apostles who declared, thus says the Lord, a revelation of God's Word that is not apostolic in authority and was contained only to the earliest days of the New Testament. We are not thinking here of the prophets of the Old Testament. But the function of New Testament prophets had a very common, had a common ministry of speaking and teaching God's Word to God's people. So the apostles and prophets were foundational to the establishment of the church. And that means those gifts no longer function in the church. We do not have Apostle Mike. We do not have Prophet William. We do not have Apostle Jed. Or Prophet Dennis, though perhaps at times Dennis could be a prophet, I don't know. But the Lord, in His wisdom, did not leave the church without word gifts. He gave evangelists 
and shepherds and teachers to the church. Some have suggested that perhaps all three of these gifts are one collective gifting in the office of an elder, and frankly, I think that's probably right. Others have suggested that evangelists were like apostles and prophets, only foundational to the church, not currently functional. The reality is, brothers and sisters, I wouldn't be too dogmatic on a, a text like this, but simply try to discern what the will of the Lord is in this text. I do think that in these three words, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, you see two gifts, evangelists and shepherd teachers, that regularly rest on one office, and that is the office of an elder. I have grammatical reasons for why that's the case, but I think the overwhelming reason that I would say three gifts, or sorry, three words, two gifts, one office, is because of the biblical testimony of the office of an elder. We find the qualifications and responsibilities of elder in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5. And in those passages, the Bible says that an elder must be exemplary in Christian character and for our purposes today, gifted to teach God's Word, a teacher. Further, an elder is to shepherd the flock of God in his midst. And Paul tells Timothy in the context of being an elder to do the work of an evangelist. And so taken as a whole, I think that these three words, evangelist, shepherds, teachers, are two gifts, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, resting regularly in the office of an elder. Beloved, do you consider your elders as a gift from God for you? Paul says that you should. Insofar as the elders of this church meet the qualifications set forth in the Bible and faithfully serve and teach and preach and shepherd and evangelize, then you should receive the ministry of these elders as a gift from God. And so brother elders in the church or those who would aspire to the office of an elder, you should consider the weight and the privilege of your gift. You are called by God. Your vocation is to shepherd the flock of God in your midst, to teach the Word of God to the people of God, and to do the work of an evangelist. Brothers, it is a noble and a grand task to be an elder, and you should pursue it eagerly. The ministry of the elder, however, is not only a word gift, Paul, I think, is telling us here that it also is a service gift that in their teaching and preaching, the congregation is served. The ministry of the elders is the means, verse 12, that God will use to equip you, brothers and sisters, for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And if that is true, brothers and sisters, then how should we prioritize the public teaching and ministry of God's Word? How should we prepare our own hearts and minds to receive God's Word to us? Brothers and sisters in Christ at Arlington Baptist Church, I urge you to not forsake the gathering together of the body, to make every effort to gather and receive God's Word every Lord's Day, to receive God's Word in faith, not just to come and check off a box, but to believe it, 
Do you believe that when anyone stands before this, behind this pulpit and preaches God's word to you, that you are hearing God's voice and you receive it in faith? This is what it means to be built up in the body of Christ. And so I urge you to strive together for the truths of the gospel, to sustain the doctrines of this church, to ensure the faithful preaching of God's word. God's word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And He has entrusted it to this church. To every other faithful church, but particularly to this church. To be proclaimed by the elders. To be received, by the, received and believed by the members. And to be preserved by His church. And it seems that the primary way that the Apostle Paul gives us to maintain and manifest the unity of the Spirit and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to do just that. To have the Word of God proclaimed to us by men of God so that the church of God will grow in the knowledge and the love of God. This is our one common purpose, beloved. To grow into mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul tells us in these last few verses that maturity looks like stability in doctrine and sanctified service. Maturity is stability in doctrine and sanctified service. Notice in verse 14 that Paul says we are not to be like little children tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. Like infants who stumble around learning to walk, so a Christian ought to grow in their doctrinal stability. We start the Christian life with a basic knowledge and understanding of Christ, like infants, toddlers, toddling around. But we wobble up the stairs of Christian doctrine and Christian maturity until we arrive at a settled conviction on Christian truth. This is why your church covenant that you commit to says that you will have no settled convictions against your statement of faith. Because you want to be mature and stable in your knowledge of Christ and be unified in the faith. Preservers of, of your proclaimed doctrine. Not just yours, but ours collectively. So brothers and sisters, you may not know this, but I'm sure that you do, that your church, Arlington Baptist Church, is known for stable doctrine. And in particular, your elders are brave men who are even now stiffening the spines of so many other church leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention on matters of gender and sexuality and especially on the biblical definition of an elder and a pastor. And so pray, brothers and sisters, that this church and these elders would continue in your faithful, stable doctrine. Verses 15 and 16, Paul tells us that maturity also shows in sanctified service to one another. Sanctified service. The elders may have the responsibility and the privilege of oversight and teaching in the church, but brothers and sisters, the ministry of the elders is to equip you in truth and love so that you can be about sanctified service in the church. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head and the Christ from whom the whole body joined together by every joint by which it's equipped builds itself up in love. And so beloved, I would simply ask you, what are you doing as sanctified service in the body of Christ? 
What joint are you in the body that holds the body together? What are you, are, are you doing to serve your brothers and sisters in the church? The church needs your sanctified service. We need each other to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need one another to love the little children in our midst. To help raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So serve in the nursery. We need men and women devoted to prayer. Serving the body by petitioning the head of the body to bless the body. Let me just say how encouraged I was this these last few days to be with the men of this congregation who so helpfully planned this men's retreat, who cared for one another. I, I saw one brother uh, simply bring a glass of water to another brother who I had not heard ask for it. Such a small gesture, just bringing a glass of water to a brother. Sanctified service in this church. This is our one common purpose in the church of Christ. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. To grow in unity and maturity in Christ. To have stable doctrine and sanctified service in the church. And the Apostle Paul will spend the rest of Ephesians showing us even more what it looks like to walk in a worthy manner. And all of his ministry, the end of Acts, we're told that he spent time proclaiming the kingdom of God. His entire ministry aimed not just in this life, but aimed at that life that is to come when our unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace will be realized finally and fully in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, great God of highest heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the encouragement we have and the power at work within us, Paul says, by Your Holy Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that You have given. We can only be called because You have called us and You have given us Your Spirit that we may walk in that worthy manner. God, we pray. I pray for this church that their walking in this worthy manner would result in praise and glory to Your name. That so many more would walk the path of life with these brothers and sisters so that they may experience the fullness of joy and the pleasure forevermore in the kingdom of Christ. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.